We've been talking about Calvinism, and the acronym for Calvinism, as the children said earlier, is TULIP. And the reason we've been studying Calvinism uh, is because the Bible says, first of all, it tests all things against Scripture. Okay? And it also says that in the last days, many false teachers, many false teachings will come. So you always need to be Bereans and test everything in Scripture. And one of the most popular teachings these days is the teaching of Tulip. I've seen friend after friend of mine uh, give themselves over to this teaching that's found in the acronym called Tulip. Okay? So let's just do a little review real quick. I want to do this every time because uh, it doesn't hurt us to go over it so we can kind of get it into our head. And we want to be able to defend what the Bible says. And if Tulip's what the Bible says, we should defend that. If it's not what it says, we shouldn't defend. We should come against it as much as we can. Okay, so T stands for Victoria. Total depravity. Total depravity. And Jen, what's the other name for that? Total inability. Total Okay. Total depravity uh, isn't just saying that every single person who's not a Christian is totally depraved or wicked or evil. I mean, everybody I think who's a Christian would believe that. But it really means total inability. I mean, it means that that lost sinners in themselves have no ability to have faith in Jesus. Uh, they have no ability to repent of their sins. And of course, you know, total depravity is very closely tied in with original sin. The idea of original sin, which teaches that uh, because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that we are born sinners. That we have this sin stuff inside of us that makes us sin. In other words, we're, we're, we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. And they change sin not into a moral free will action, but some kind of stuff that's inside of you. Okay, so the teacher said people are born sinners, people, babies, if they die, will go to hell because they're sinners, because of what Adam did. And what we found in the scripture is that uh, the close teaching of scripture is that sin is a moral action, it's a willful transgression that you, you rebellion against God is basically what it is. We found there's an age of accountability or an age of knowledge, another word for it. Uh, we also found that if someone is not that age, the age of accountability, the age of knowledge, a young child, uh, if they commit an act that would be a sin for someone who's to the age of accountability, that God does not call it a sin for them. He doesn't hold it against them. So you have no understanding, no knowledge of what is right and wrong uh, to that extent. Uh, we, we found that we do have something called the flesh. But we found that in, in the Greek, there's no such thing as a sinful nature. That's the word sark, which is translated literally means flesh. And that the word sinful nature is added in there by the people who actually translate from the Greek into the NIV, okay? But we have a flesh that tempts us to sin, but temptation, or our flesh, is not sin in and of itself. We're only accountable to God for our own sins, not for the sins of our father or our, our grandfather or great-great-great-grandpappy Adam, okay? We're not responsible for his sins, only for ours. God, God will cause us to give an account for our own deeds, our own thoughts, okay? God commands all men everywhere to repent and trust. And because he God commits all men everywhere to repent and trust, he's given them this gift called free will. He allows them to choose for themselves who they will serve. Okay? And free will is just the power to choose between two different opposite things. That's all it is. So that's that's T in a nutshell. Let me look at you. Now what does you stand for? Daniel. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. And can give me a synopsis of what that means. Anyone know kids? What, what does unconditional election mean? Uh, okay. If you don't know, that's fine. It basically just means that, that God picks and chooses who's going to be saved. Okay? 
arbitrarily picks and chooses who's going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved. You know, if, if, if you're born into this world, which all of us have at this point in time, it doesn't matter what you do, or what moral actions or immoral actions you do, if God's chosen to be saved at some point in time, you will be saved. No matter what you do. And if God's chosen you to, be, to go to hell, it doesn't matter how many good things you do, or, or, or if you try to repent, or try, no matter what your desires are, you're going to hell no matter what. And that, that's what unconditional election teaches. That you're either predestined to heaven or predestined to hell, and, and God's the one who does the predestinate, okay, individuals. But we learn that, that comes against you, is that God wants all men to be saved. All men, all women to be saved. Uh, he allows them to choose themselves whether they'll be saved or not. Again, it goes back to the gift of free will that he's given every person. Uh, God predestines a certain type of person, a holy person, a person who's going to live for him, who's going to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and persevere to the end. He may even uh, predestine a certain group of people, like Jews and Gentiles. But he doesn't predestine individuals. Okay? We also found that God doesn't play favorites. Now, there is no favoritism in God's kingdom. He loves all equally, and he wants all to be saved. And when God, when we play favorites, when people play favorites, God calls it sin. So if God's going to call what we do sin, he wouldn't do it himself. Okay? We also look at the words like chosen and, and the word foreknowledge, and we went to definitions of what they mean, and that, that chosen doesn't always mean picking and choosing. Chosen can mean precious in God's sight or valuable to him. And we look at some verses that have to deal with that. Uh, in, in fact, most times, if we go to the Greek Old Testament, almost every single time, the word chosen is translated as precious. Something that's special to God. Not something he picks out of something. Okay? And we looked at the word foreknowledge, and, and we saw that it doesn't mean that God always knows from all of eternity everything. It could mean he just knew the last week. And we use the example of me and my wife. You know, we've been married for seven years now, almost seven years, known each other for about seven years. And if we went to a restaurant tonight, and and she went to the restroom while they were asking me to place an order. I could order her favorite drink. I could order her favorite dessert without, without her knowing what she was going to order because I know from my experience with her what she would want, what she would like to drink, what she would want to eat. And because of my foreknowledge, not her whole life, not from all eternity knowing her, but knowing her since the last seven years, I can order the right thing for her. Okay? So that's, that's basically what, what you mean. So we looked at L. Now, now what, is, what does L mean? Hannah? You don't know? Caitlin? What, what do you Limit, think? Limited atonement. Limited atonement, that's right. And look at the word atonement. And the word atonement, you take the, just a mint off it, it means at one. To, to bring two parties that are separated back together. That's what Christ did the cross. But limited atonement teaches that Christ did not die for everyone. Christ died only for the people God has picked to be saved, which makes sense. Then why, if God has already picked who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven, why would he send Christ to die for everyone? It wouldn't make any sense. Okay? Look at the idea of, of double jeopardy and what that means. And that if, if God does pick and choose some to go to hell and some to go to heaven, Christ couldn't have died for everyone. Okay? And then look at the idea of Jesus paying your fine. Or Jesus get, uh, receiving the exact punishment for your sins on the cross. We also look at the idea of Jesus dying for the many instead of the all and what that means. But we, what we learned is, even though Calvinism teaches these things, that Jesus did die for all. He died for the all, but it's the many are the ones who will choose to be saved. Okay, where Calvinism would say, he died for the many, but it, it's, it's all, actually, the all is just the many who he died for. Christ died to fulfill the law. He didn't take our exact punishment. Right. Now, now, what was our exact punishment if we were to die in our sins? Hell. 
Hell, that's right, it's good. We would go to hell. And, and, and did, did Jesus go to hell? No. No, he didn't go to hell. And, and, if he, and if he was to take our exact punishment, let's just say we use the example of a million people getting saved, total, for all, for all uh, the time here on earth, when Christ comes back. That means that Christ had to go to, for a million eternities, he'd have to go to hell. So he didn't take our exact punishment on the cross. What we did learn is that, it, that the atonement of Jesus is a substitute for sinners going to hell. Right. It's a substitute in God's eyes. Okay? Jesus died to reconcile us to God the Father because our sin separates us from God the Father. He didn't die to satisfy God's wrath or justice. Uh, God can just forgive or pardon a sinner based on the conditions that he has made. He doesn't just have to pour out his wrath. God can set aside his wrath. I mean, use the natural example of, of a brother and sister having an argument and they have a fight and, and, and maybe the sister, sister does something wrong against the brother. The, the brother's not going to demand that he pours his wrath out on something. They're going to say, well, I can't just forgive you. I have to go find a punching bag and beat it up until, it's, until it's, it falls apart. No, he sets aside his wrath. He says, I'm just going to forgive. I'm going to treat you as if you had never done anything wrong against me. And that's what God does with sinners. He pardons them. He has grace and mercy. And when the conditions are met, that's how God can forgive. That's what the atonement's all about. And the conditions are this. A blood atonement of a sinless person. Jesus Christ is the only person who can meet that requirement. It's the only person who's ever sinless. And the other two requirements that, that the sinner puts their trust in the sinless person, what he did on the cross, and they repent of their sins. And persevere to the end. When those conditions are met, that person is granted God's mercy and God's grace and God's pardon. Okay, today we come to I. And I stands for irresistible grace. Okay? So we're going to look at what this means today and look to see if this if it's biblical or not. We're going to look at the pros or, or what the Calvinists believe more in depth. But irresistible grace basically teaches that, that whoever God wants to be saved will be saved, and the means he uses to save them is by his drawing power, his grace. Okay? He will draw them and they can't resist it. If God's going to draw them, they cannot, they have, there's no will in problem situation. In fact, Calvinists would say that the word draw that we're going to look at here in a little bit means to drag. Like, against their will. Like, you know, you picture the old caveman dragging his wife by her hair. That's dragging her along. That's, that's the, really the picture that Calvinists give of, the, of God and the sinner. He drags them against his will. So really, God is saving sinners who don't want to be saved right. in their natural state. Okay? So that's what he dragged them to salvation against their own will. That people have no free will. If God has chosen you, he will draw you, and you will respond. You know, since sinners are dead, you know, they have no ability to repent and trust in Jesus. God grants them repentance. He gives them faith as a gift. Uh, you know, man is totally passive when it comes to salvation. But we're gonna, I think what we're going to find today as we, we go into this is that man is not passive. Man is very active in it. doesn't mean man gets the glory, but man is active in it. Only God will receive the glory for salvation. So let's open to John chapter 6. And we're going to start out with some verses that they use to, to kind of prove their idea of the irresistible grace. And we'll see if they're if it's uh, something that they can, really can use to prove irresistible grace. John chapter 6, the last gospel. We're going to start in verse 44. And it says this. It says, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now let's turn over to, to verse 65. Okay, then we'll get back to verse 45 in a second. 
And verse 65 says, And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Okay? Let's go back to verse 44, for example. I want you to see the context of verse 44. Now, we can't just look at a verse and, and make a doctrine just because the, this one verse we think it says something that we think it says. Right. And really, what a lot of people do, they'll go with the scripture with goggles on, they'll be reading it through their own theological box. Instead of reading it unbiasedly. Let's look at what verse 45 says. It says, uh, And it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God, therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. But basically what I want you to see here is that they all shall be taught by God. Now listen to the, the two things here that happens. Therefore everyone who has heard, because everyone, you know, basically everyone's going to hear in some way, shape, or form, whether it's through natural things that God receives his glory through, like creation and conscience, or it's through the hearing of the gospel. But it's only those who learn from the Father who will come to him. So there's lots of people who hear, but they don't apply it. They don't learn from it. They reject it. They rebel against it, and they go their own way. But th this drawing thing, uh, I want to show you that it's not just certain people being, because that's what people, are, that's what Calvin are saying. They're saying that this drawing is only for certain people. God's only drawing certain people. But let's turn to John chapter 12, verse 32. Let's look at Jesus' words for himself and see what Jesus says. So in John 6.44 and 6.65, we have this talking about drawing. And Calvinists would isolate those verses and say, listen, this is only talking about certain people here. It's talking about the elect. These people who God picked out before time began to be saved. But John 12.32, this is Jesus talking here. And he says, and you know, a lot of people use this, this verse the wrong way. He says, and if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And people will say, and I used to do this myself, that this means that if you preach about Jesus or you, you pray to Jesus, you're lifting his name up, or you're worshiping Jesus, people will be drawn in by the worship and by you praying and by you uh, preaching about his name. But he's talking about the crucifixion here. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Not just some men, all men. The Holy Spirit's actively working right now to draw all men. The problem is people reject it. They reject the drawing of God. Okay, so what we see right here is at least since the cross, that God's been drawing all men unto himself. At least since then. Okay, we can look at other scriptures that talk about that as well. Let's look at Genesis chapter 6 and, and verse 3. And we'll look at what, what uh, God said about the people before he sent the blood to the earth. Genesis 6 and verse 3. And it says, And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. And the word strive there, the Hebrew word there, is talking about contend, or plead the cause. So it, it, he's saying that in that point in time, people were becoming so wicked, that he was coming to the point where he was going to give up on them. And he said, I'm basically going to put a number on it. In 120 years, I'm giving up on this human race. And we saw that when the flood came, he gave up all of them, except for eight. All of humankind, for eight people, he gave up on them. He said, my spirit will not strive, will not contend, will not plead the cause forever. And, that, and that's, that, that's the teaching of reprobation. And any person is in danger of that. You know, when I preach in the open air, and, and a sinner will say, well, I can wait till my deathbed and get saved. I say, well, hold on a second. First of all, how do you know you're going to have a deathbed experience? 
And second of all, even if you do, who knows if you'll be a reprobate by then. You could be going on in your sin so much, you're, you're, going, you're hearing the gospel being spoke today, God's drawing you near through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit's probably convicting you of your sin, and you're rejecting it. Who's to say God won't give up on you? See, they presume uh, that, great, that God's always going to be there trying to convict them. But God will give up on them. I mean, Isaiah 55 talks about that as well. Let's turn there for a second. I use a lot as a final admonition in the open air. We're not going to talk to the sinners. Isaiah 55 and verse 6 says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. See, he's presuming that he's not always going to be near. He can't always be found. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Okay, so the people should seek God while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He's not always going to be near. Okay, so if God is going to draw all men, so here's the question, we have to ask, from our point of view, going against this drawing thing, if God's going to draw all men, then why in, in John chapter 6, verses 44 and 65, why is he even mentioning this? Why is he even saying they can't come to me unless my Father draws them? Well, this is what I would say. Because God alone will receive glory and honor and praise for salvation. He's putting the focus on the, where it should be. It's not about you. You're not saving yourself. Yeah, you may choose, sinner, to repent and trust, but it's me who's going to receive the glory. That's why I think he talks about drawing here. He's showing that it all goes back to him, even the gift of free will. And isn't that what James 1.17 says? That every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights? Everything good comes from him, including free will, including the ability to choose. That's where I think where Calvinists go, kind of go off there. They say, well, well if, if you don't believe that God picks and chooses, then you're giving glory to yourself. This person was smarter because he chose, and this person didn't. Well, God allows them to choose. And the fact that they have the ability to choose a gift from God. Then let's look at this word, uh, regeneration. Now, this is a word that's used a lot in Calvinistic circles, but you'd be surprised it's only used twice in the New Testament. Twice. And one time it's not even talking about salvation. The only time we see it talking about salvation is in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Okay, we can turn there for a second. But Calvinists would say, again, that this is something that God does, and they're totally passive. God regenerates you, you know, and, and their idea is that you're constitutionally, you are a sinner. You have this sin stuff inside you, and God does something to you that this sin stuff no longer has power over you, or he restores free will to you. Okay? So it's not, in other words, it's not something that you, regeneration, the Calvinist viewpoint, it's not something that you want to happen. It's something that God does against your will. Again, it's like dragging you to it. Okay? But let's, let's read uh, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. And it says, uh, says this, Not by works of righteousness, let's, let's actually start in verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay? I think the problem here is, is the, one of the problems is, is the definition of grace. Uh, grace means unmerited favor, it also means the power to overcome sin. But grace is, is not just mean that a man is totally passive in a situation. Okay? Grace means that you couldn't have saved yourself. There's nothing you can do or will do that can save yourself. Okay? So, so when, when it says by grace you are saved, and that uh, the washing of regeneration, the grace is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. 
That's one of the conditions that have to be met. You and I cannot meet that condition. We've already sinned in the past. And no matter how little we sin in the future, how much repenting we do, that itself will never save us. It can't wash away our past sins. It can't wash away the punishment we deserve for our past sins. Only the mercy and kindness of our God and Savior can do that. And that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. The law had to be fulfilled. That's what grace is. Grace doesn't mean you're not involved at all. Okay? Grace means that you can't save yourself. And we can't save ourselves. In fact, we're dependent on God even for free will, as we've already stated. But the Greek word here means to, uh, is palogenesia, and it means to experience a complete change of life, a rebirth. And really, it's synonymous, regeneration is synonymous with becoming born again or born from above. Okay? But because you're born again or born from, from above doesn't mean it's all passive. Okay, so we need to get that out of our mind. You know, Calvinists will say that regeneration is, pass is, is that you're passive in a situation that God does it all, but they can't prove it from Scripture itself. They have this idea, and then they go to this word and say, that's what it means. Right. They're finding the word by their own definition. So they're going to it and saying, well, what does it say? All right, let's, let's look at the word dead for a, for a second. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at what the word dead means here. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And it says, uh, and, and you, he made alive, there's a regeneration thing there, okay, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then in verse 5 it says, even when we were dead in trespasses, okay, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Okay, remember, remember grace isn't something that we're totally passive in. Grace is something that's offered to us, that we can never come up with ourselves, okay? But the word dead here, well, let's look at one other passage real quick to see dead. Colossians chapter 2. And verse 13. And then we'll talk about the word dead. Colossians 2.13 says, and, and you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Okay? The Greek word for dead here is nekros. Okay? And it has really has three different meanings here. One, the first meaning is it can mean that someone's actually physically dead. You see that word used in Acts chapter 5 when it's talking about Ananias and Sapphira, who were dead. They were literally physically dead. So necros is used there. And then in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, where Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Now let me ask you this. Can, can that be talking about physically dead people burying physically dead people? Is that even possible? No. That's right. So obviously, necros doesn't always mean physically dead. Another uh, word for, uh, for that, another uh, reason it could, it could mean actually that someone was uh, as if one was physically dead. Okay? And one example we have of that is Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, where John fell as dead before uh, for the angel there who was speaking to him, or for Jesus who was speaking to him. And we find that a lot when people encounter angels. They fall as if they're dead. But are they really physically dead? No, they're not. They can still speak. They can still move. They can still stand up because they're told to stand up. Okay, so that's, that's the second meaning of necros. If one is physically dead, the second one is, is actually as if they were physically dead. The third definition is the one I think we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. To be so morally or spiritually deficient as to be in effect dead. Okay? 
So it, it means uh, that the relationship between God and us as sinners is dead. Our relationship is dead. In fact, we were just talking about this a little while ago. We were talking about the prodigal son. Okay? Turn to uh, Luke chapter 15. And, and we'll look and see what the father, the father of this son said about him. And really, this is talking about, you know, Jesus used parables to, to explain sometimes the relationship between sinners and God. Okay? Or explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 15. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing, but I want to point out to you just two verses. Uh, the father says in verse 24, For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be married. And then in verse 32, I'm talking to the older son now. I said, it was right that we should make, glary and, uh, make Mary and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Now, it could be talking about the fact that it was if he was dead, but the relationship between the father and that son was dead. They had no relationship. I mean, the, the son treated the father as if he was dead himself. He said, give me my money now. Now, you don't get your money until your father dies most times. Okay, so when he, he, he actually treated his, his father as if he was dead, and then their relationship was dead because he went and spoiled it on, on sin and pleasure and wickedness. But now he's coming back to the father. And I think that's what we're, we're talking about here in, in uh, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, and Colossians 2, 13. We're talking about a relationship with God, that someone is so morally or spiritually deficient as if as an effect to be dead. And the relationship between them and God is dead. As if he's not their father. And that's really what John 17.3 says. You know, this is eternal life. Knowing God the Father and the one he has sent. Mm -hmm. So that eternal life or spiritual life is having a relationship with God the Father. And when someone is dead, it doesn't mean they can't do anything. It doesn't mean they don't have any ability to repent or trust in Jesus. It means their current state is so morally deficient or spiritually corrupted that their relationship with God is impossible. Mm -hmm. Because God is holy. He has a relationship with those who are holy. And by the blood of Jesus, they can be cleansed of their sins, they can be pardoned, and then start a relationship with God the Father. But they're expected as Christians to live holy lives. I mean, what, what did Paul really say? What, what did he really mean in Galatians 2.20 when he says, And I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, was he really physically crucified? No. No, he's, he's talking about that he crucified his flesh. That he was willing to put aside those things so he could have a relationship with God the Father. In Romans chapter 6, turn there for a second, verse 11, we can see this, this dead and alive thing being contrasted against each other. And, and we'll see what we think it means here. It's the word necros being used here again. And, and we'll see what, what we, does it mean physically dead? Does it mean if physically dead? Or does it mean spiritually and morally corrupt? That kind of dead. Okay? Likewise, also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. In other words, you have no relationship with sin any longer, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That means your relationship with God is, is, is in tune. You're living for Him, but your relationship with sin is dead. You want nothing to do with it. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, as, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Okay, so we have the, the dead and alive thing being contrasted here. And it's talking about relationship. Your relationship with sin as a Christian should be dead. As if it doesn't exist. That you're not going to partake in it. You have no 
relationship, no fellowship with sin at all. That's what it should be for Christians. You know, but your relationship with God should be alive to God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so that doesn't mean that, that we can't do anything. It doesn't mean that you have no capacity to do anything morally right to make good choices. It means that, you, that your relationship with God is non-existent because you're, you're living for sin. If you, you have a relationship with sin, you have no relationship with Christ. I mean, you know, Christ, in the Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians, I think chapter 6, talks about the yoke. It says, you know, what fellowship does, does a, a saint have with a sinner? It doesn't have a relationship with it because a saint is a holy person who has no relationship with sin. Okay, so, so being dead and trespasses and sins is talking about you have a relationship with sin and therefore you have no relationship with God. But it doesn't mean you can't choose to repent. It doesn't mean you can't choose to trust in Christ and choose to live for Him the rest of your days. Now let's turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And we'll talk about works and boasting. Now we've already discussed grace and, and what that means. But it says right here, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And, and the argument the Calvinists will give here is say, well, well look, if, if you chose salvation, but this guy didn't, you just made a good choice. This person didn't make a good choice. So when you get to heaven, you can boast, look, I made a good choice. Well, you know, that's just a ridiculous statement. I mean, if, if, I, if I work for the Coast Guard, and I'm going to save someone who's drowning at sea, and this guy has no ability to save himself. He's cast out the sea. He's going to drown eventually. There's no islands nearby to, to swim towards. He's going to drown. His muscles are going to wear out no matter how good a swimmer he is, and he's going to drown eventually. And we go on the Coast Guard out there on a boat, and we toss a life preserver to him. And he says, oh, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to pick this life preserver and put it on. And he puts it on. And they get back to the news conference, and they're talking about how the Coast Guard saved this guy. And he says, well, wait a minute. I chose to be saved. I mean... How many people in the news media going to actually just laugh that guy off the stage? That he had no, I mean, people came out there and offered him to be saved. But does that guy deserve credit for grabbing on to the light preserver? Did he deserve credit for saving himself? Of course not. And therefore, even though sinners choose, after they're drawn by the Holy Spirit, they hear the Word of God priest, they choose to repent and trust in Christ. It doesn't mean they deserve any credit for it. That's ridiculous. There'll be no boasting in heaven. God will receive all the glory. Or if, you know, if a criminal who's committed murder, multiple murders, and, and he's, he's broken over, he's repented, maybe he's even become a Christian in jail, a real Christian, not a jailhouse Christian, but a real Christian, and, and, and a governor's coming through, before he ends his term, he's deciding to pardon the criminal. And he goes to a couple different criminals, and he decides to pardon this repentant criminal. Does that, does that criminal deserve any kind of credit for being pardoned? No. He has no power to pardon himself. Only the, the governor has the power to pardon that criminal. But because he has had a change of lifestyle, the governor has chosen to pardon him over another criminal. Okay? But grace is unmerited favor. Grace isn't for salvation. Okay? It's offering someone something they could never offer themselves. But they still have to choose it. Grace is offering forgiveness, offering pardon of sin, which I cannot offer myself. Because I have no ability to pardon myself. I have no ability, as not, I'm not the judge of this universe, I'm not the ruler of this universe. I have no ability to forgive myself of things I've committed against God. Only God, as the judge of the universe, has that ability. 
So there'll be no boasting in heaven. Now let's look at, let's look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. And we're looking at this idea of appointed or granted and what it means to be appointed unto eternal life or granted repentance. You know, those type of things we see in the Bible. And see what it actually is saying here. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. It says, When they heard these things, they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now let me set up the situation here. I should probably set up before I read it, but... This is Peter coming back to the council of the Jewish Christians, explaining to them what happened with him and Cornelius. In fact, the Cornelius got saved, he got filled. They were, they were kind of angry at Peter, because Peter went to a Gentile's house, first of all. Second of all, he offered salvation to a Gentile, which from the Jews' point of view was a big no-no. You know, we're the chosen people. We're the people God's chosen to be saved. And, and, and what they're glorifying here, after Peter explains the experience of how the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles, and they can't refute that experience. I mean, Peter saw it with their own two eyes. They spoke in tongues. They were saved. It was clearly the same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost, and God did it that way to show them, listen, just like you were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, I just filled them. Who are you to tell me I'm not going to choose the Gentiles for salvation? And all it's saying here is that they glorified God, saying that God has also granted the Gentiles repentance and life. So they're saying, wow, the Gentiles can be saved too. That's all it's saying. Not talking about individuals. Talking about a group of people who God said, yes, I want them to be saved too. And really, if you look throughout the Old Testament, that's what it's been all, at all times. The, the Jews were never the only people who were supposed to be saved. The Jews were just selfish and kept it to themselves for most of them. And the ones who weren't selfish and went you know, across mountain and sea to make a convert, the Bible says most of them made them twice the, twice the sons of hell that they were. So they had wrong intentions in going out and converting somebody. Okay? Now let's look at Acts chapter 13, a couple pages over. And look at verses uh, 46 through 48. And it says this, it says that, Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, talking about Jews. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we will turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have sent you as a light to the Gentiles, they should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That's Old Testament right there, by the way. Now when the Gentiles heard this, uh, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. As many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Now I want you to notice something here. That, that, that of course, Paul and Barnabas are speaking to the Jews at first. And then the Gentiles got excited because, listen, they, they said, well, we could be saved too. Yeah, I, I want to be saved. I mean, if you thought for a while that you couldn't be saved and then someone told you you could be saved, you'd be pretty happy too. Now, I want you to look at verse 46. Now, who, and Paul, who is Paul and Barnabas blaming the fact that they reject the gospel? Of? He's blaming it on the people. He's not saying, well, well, you know, it was necessary the word of God should be preached to you, spoken to you first, but since, you know, God hasn't chosen you, and, and, and God has judged you unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we return to the Gentiles. It's not what it says. It says, you have rejected it, because you have chosen and judged for yourself that you yourselves are unworthy, then fine, we'll go to the Gentiles. And we'll shake our sandals off at you on the way there. Okay, so, so it's not talking about appointing certain people. It's talking about people groups once again. Now let's turn to 2 Timothy. This is probably the favorite one people use, Calvinists use. 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 2. And uh, we'll look at the verse starting verse 25.
Okay, it says, uh, and humility, he's talking about the servant of the Lord, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance, that they might know the truth, that they may come to their senses, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So it's talking about granting them repentance. Okay? And it's talking about how, how we're to act when we're witnessing to people or sharing the gospel, that we should be humble, correcting, uh, opposing those who are in opposition. Okay, that God might by chance grant them repentance. Okay? Now, to say anything there about individuals that he's going to grant them to and not going to grant them to. Doesn't say that there. It's right into it because you already have a presupposition that, well, God's picked certain people to be saved, therefore, he's granting certain people to be saved. But the Bible says God wants all to be saved. Let's look at that last week. If he wants all to be saved, then I'll say he's going to grant all the ability to repent. And so, so the question again becomes. Why does God even mention granting repentance here? Again, I think it's to get our focus where it needs to be. That God and God alone will receive glory for salvation. You will not receive glory, no matter how well you've chosen salvation. You will never receive glory. Just like the, the, you know, the Coast Guard who rescued the man from drowning. That man will never receive glory for saving himself. No matter how hard he grasped on to that life preserver. No matter how skillful he was in going and to swing up inside that life preserver, he will never receive glory for it. And neither will man. And that's the whole point of the, uh, only those who God draws will come to me. Only it, grant them repent. That's the whole point of the whole thing. It's to get our view back on track. But the Bible, you know, you have to interpret the Bible with the Bible. You can't just take a couple verses like these and, and isolate them and say, well, this is what the, the Bible said. We learned last week that God wants all to be saved. And, and, and you, we learned that God wants all to be saved. Now let's look at some verses that, that go against it, okay? Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 9. Now, if you have a King James Version, there's a lot of whosoever's in the Bible. If you have a New King James Version, it's just whoever, you know? But it's talking about whosoever, whoever chooses. And we're going to look at some of those verses for, for a second. John chapter 1, and we'll look at, start at verse 9, I guess. It's talking about Jesus. And that John the Baptist came as a witness of Jesus. It says this, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Okay, and, and, and then once you're after that, it's talking about, let's, let's get it in focus here. It says, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, you can choose to repent and trust in Jesus. But if God didn't have those requirements for you to become born again, you can repent and trust all you want, you'd never become born again. But God, God, God has said, if you repent, if you trust in Jesus, you'll become born again. That's what's going to happen. That's the will of God. But you can't make yourself born again. It's, it's, it's the Spirit of God that makes you born again. Coming and dwelling inside of you. Okay? Uh, and we already saw in John 12, 32 that God draws all men near. Let's look at John chapter 16. You know, what's amazing is that a lot of times Calvinists will prize themselves on, on the Gospel of John. In fact, you'll, you'll hear like Luther say, well, it's the best Gospel there is, the Gospel of John. And, and, and because they, they get all these so-called verses out of here that... that uh, produce results for their tulips. But you look in their own gospel, they like so much, you'll see things that go against it. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the Helper would not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Not just certain people, but the whole world. Because God wants all men to be saved. Now, you know, a lot of times when I ask the Calvin, I say, well, you know, if God's already picked and choose who's going to be saved, then what's the point of us even preaching the gospel? And the best answer I've heard, which I don't think is a good answer, is that the means God uses to bring about his end of saving the elect, the ones he's picked to be saved, is preaching the gospel. That's the means he uses. Okay? And I've always wanted, I haven't had a chance yet, but I always wanted to ask them, is the gospel the only means God uses? Does God also use persuasion? <clears throat> Persuading? And, and what we'll see, I want you to show you here in the book of Acts, is that Paul, over and over again, tries to persuade people. I mean, if you put yourself in Paul's shoes, if Paul really believes in the doctrine of election, like that, like Tulip says, or unconditional election, why would he even bother trying to persuade? Just preach the gospel, it's the power of God and the salvation, and leave it at that. God will convert them. But Paul does persuade. You, you see, uh, like in, in, in verse, well, it, Paul persuading people. I'm not, we'll not have to turn to these things, but Acts chapter 18, verse 4. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. Acts chapter 19, verse 26. Acts chapter 28, verse 20 through 24 persuading whole groups of people to come to knowledge of the truth, to be saved. Because he thinks that God, God will use his persuasion, that his persuasion means something, and that God has it arbitrarily before the foundation of the world picked and chose who is going to be saved. He knows that all have the ability to choose to be saved. And then you have King Agrippa. You know, George Whitfield wrote an article about this situation. King Agrippa said to, to Paul, he said, Almost thou persuaded me to become a Christian. Almost. So, so, so Paul was using his persuading, his reasoning skills to reason with Agrippa, and Agrippa said, no, you almost did, Paul, but I'm going to stop you right there. So it really, it probably means that if King Agrippa allowed Paul to continue, he would have been persuaded. That sounds to me like he has some power of choice there. That God hasn't predetermined and, 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 and said who's going to be saved and who isn't. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And then I also have a sandwich board, which was uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, which says, and a new King James says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I think the NASB says, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, so men are involved in this situation, persuading, begging, imploring lost sinners, reject your sin and come to Christ. Beg for mercy at the bloodstained cross. Where alone you can be saved. Then this is idea of, of can men resist God's drawing or not. I look at some of the proof texts that Calvinists use to say that God draws men. It doesn't say that they, they definitely that every man God draws will come to him, but they presuppose this with a saying. So let's let's look at some verses that say that, that men can resist. Let's look at Matthew chapter twenty two. And I hope you're seeing that the fact that we're going through all these verses that this isn't some like Little thing I'm trying to, you know, trying to promote here. This is all for the Bible. It's, it's, it's just so foundational to, to preaching the gospel, to living a Christian life, that you have the power to choose, and that God hasn't chosen who's going to be saved and who isn't. And we're going to actually read this, this little parable here, the wedding feast. And I want you to really pay attention to some of the words here. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered them and spoke to them by, again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, who arranged a marriage for his son. This is the kingdom of heaven. God arranging a marriage for his son, Jesus. 
and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing. God invited them. They were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Come to the wedding. This is not a, a Christian evangelist preaching to someone who's not elect. This is God telling people, I want you to come. Okay? Not people. See, the Calvinists will say, well, you know, the reason why I preach to everybody is because I don't know who's elected and who isn't. But does God know who's elected and who isn't? Then why is God telling people to come who can't come or won't come? It says they were not willing. But they made light of it and went their ways. They went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about this, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murders, and burned up their city. Then he said to them, to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. They were not worthy. They, they were not worthy to choose to take up the cross daily and follow me. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. Now, he didn't, he didn't lay any kind of specification. Only invite these people. Invite as many as you can. And I just want to go down to verse 14 for a second. We talked about this a little bit last week, or the week before. It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. But the word chosen there can mean like precious in God's sight. Not like God picked them. And, and we see that that's exactly what it means, precious in His sight, by looking at what it says in verse 18. Those who were invited were not worthy. But many are called, but few are worthy, we could say. Few are worthy to guilt their sin and, and live their life the way they want to. They live their life the way they want to. It's living the way God wants them to live. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 23, one page over probably, and look at verse 37. And this is Jesus talking here. Again, we have God talking first, talking about the kingdom of heaven, what is life. Now we got Jesus talking. These are from the words of the Master. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Sound like what God was talking about a second ago, huh? How often I wanted to gather you. Gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You were, see, there's that will thing again. It's like God's given them free will and they were not willing to come. But He wills for them to come. He, how he wants to gather them. But they don't want to be gathered. You know, if a, if a, if a hen goes to her chicks and says, come on, chicks, come on, and they don't want to be gathered, they're going to go their own way. And eventually they might have some repercussions for them. They may walk up into a road and get run over by a car. That's what happens when, when chicks don't listen to the hen. When people don't listen to God, there's going to be some damnation in the end. Chicken hawk comes. Yeah, chicken hawk comes and they snatch them up. Okay, let's turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to look at this situation with Stephen. Stephen has some pretty harsh words for the religious leadership. And when I get to the, through the verse 57 here, I'm going to contrast this to something else, and I want you to see what you think about it. Now Stephen talking to the religious leaders in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always, what? Resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. See, they learned it from their fathers. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law 
by the direction of angels and have not kept it. But when they heard these things, now, now, he's, now Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, and these people are resisting the Holy Spirit. We're established that they're resisting the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit while he's preaching. Okay? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. There's a lot of resisting going on there. And first of all, he's talking about how they always resist the Holy Spirit. Then you have a man preaching under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. These people are resisting with all. They even go to the point of stopping their ears, almost like a little child, saying, la, 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 and going charging at him to kill him. Now let's look at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Same situation, different response. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Watch what happens to the hearers. Now when they heard this, Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart. Same as that phrase, wouldn't you know it? And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Their response was different. They didn't resist the Holy Spirit. They didn't resist the cutting to the heart. And how many were saying that thing? 3,000. Yeah. 3,000 souls were added that day. See, we had two groups of people being cut to the heart. One was, they didn't like it. They, they went to the point of stopping the ears. They didn't want to hear it anymore. But charging at the person who was preaching killed him. Whereas the other ones on the day of Pentecost said, yes, what shall we do? And they were saved. That's what you see every day in the open air when you're preaching. You have those that say, la, 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 we don't want to hear you, and if we could, we'd kill you. They would. They'll call the police on you, say lies about you, talk on a about you, try to discredit you, but they don't want to hear what you have to say. Then there's few who will hear, and they will get saved. Praise God for that. To him alone belongs the glory. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. Hebrews 2 verse 3. It says, uh, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now let me ask you a question. If God's only going to draw the people who are going to be saved, who he's picked and choose to be saved, and they have no choice, they're dragged to salvation. How can anyone neglect salvation? How can it possibly be neglected? It can't be. Because the people who are hearing it who aren't going to be saved from the Calvinist point of view, they have no option to be saved. It's not theirs to neglect. That's right, that's right. it's not theirs to neglect. So how can they neglect it? But the point is, people can neglect salvation. And people do neglect salvation. They neglect the gospel. They neglect their conscience. They neglect the Holy Spirit. They refuse it all to their own damnation. And let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll look at verse 25. And it says... See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they not escape, you refused him who spoke on earth. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. That's uh, Hebrews 12, 25. How can you refuse him that's not offered to you? It's already been refused for you. You can't refuse it. Why, why would you be punished for something you, you can't refuse? 
Now, if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. What I see in the Bible is not a passive man. Totally passive in salvation in every aspect. I see something called synergism. Mm -hmm. I see an active man. A man who God commands to be active. That's why God commands all men everywhere to repent. But the problem lies in that people who think that synergism is wrong, they say, well, that gives man glory. What we've already discussed, it doesn't give man glory at all. You know, Jesus in John 15 commands us to abide in Christ. If you're not abiding in Christ, you'll produce no fruit. If you want to be a fruit-bearing Christian, you better abide in Christ. But you have to do the one, you have to be the one who does the abiding. God doesn't do the abiding for you. You have to do the abiding. But apart from Christ, John 15 says, we can do nothing. So there's, there's a working relationship there. And then we got in, in uh, Acts chapter... Let's, let's look at the story. Acts chapter 26. This is Paul recounting his Damascus Road experience here. I want you to see what Paul says here when he recounts it. Acts 26. And we're going to start in uh, verse 15. So Paul's recounting his Damascus Road experience here. And he says this is a... So I said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. To rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I have yet to reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. You know, a lot of times Calvinists, one of their best examples for, you know, man so pacifist is the Apostle Paul. Look, he was blinded, he saw this big light from heaven. You know, what, what choice did he have in that? Well, I'll tell you what, Paul didn't have a choice in whether a light was going to come from heaven or not, and whether he's going to be blinded or not. But he didn't have a choice to be disobedient to the heavenly vision. As his own words say here. He could have walked around blind the rest of his life. And went straight to hell for it. But he chose to not be disobedient to the heavenly vision. Paul's own words himself. You know, God, God may, may give you a heavenly vision. And you're accountable to your knowledge. And I would say that if the Apostle Paul was disobedient to the heavenly vision, he would have had a worse hell than most people. Because he had more knowledge than most people. God reached out to him stronger then he tries to reach out to most people. Philippians chapter 2. Let's turn there. And I think right here you'll see synergism at its best. This verse is right here. Philippians chapter 2. That's starting in verse 12. So therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But now listen to the next verse. This is God's part here. For it is God who works in you to both do it, do both to will and to do it for his good pleasure. That's synergism there. That's God commanding you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but at the same time giving glory to the one it deserves, what it belongs to. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his own good pleasure. Then we have, you know, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I can't do all things. But it's through Christ who strengthens me. And then 1 Corinthians 
No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. God's part. But when you're tempted, he'll provide a way out. God's part. You can escape it. So you can come up under this sin and not be given into it. See, God will provide a way out. He will not, let you be, not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But you still have to choose. You still have to choose not to sin. That's a, that's a working relationship. God's working with you because He wants you to live holy. And if you want to live holy, you can live holy. Amen. So the conclusion of the matter is this. I is wrong. God's grace is the most resisted thing in the world. He wants everyone to be saved, but very few will be saved. That's right. It's just by lots of people. I see it every day when I preach the gospel. I'll see people even convicted on their faces. But they go on with their sin anyway. They'll, they'll leave the, the open air meeting and say some, some kind of random thing doesn't make any sense and they'll walk away in their sins. I'll go home and pray for them. God will draw you. He'll persuade you. He'll, he'll, he may bless you. He may hurt you. He may convict you. He may even give you a shining light on the middle of a road trip. But He will not force you to be saved. He'll do a lot of things to get your attention. But He will not force salvation on you or anyone else. If God was in the business of forcing salvation on people, he'd force on every single person. Every single person. God makes salvation available to all, but it's for the whoever's or the whosoever's. Those who consider themselves worthy of eternal life. Those who choose to repent and trust in Jesus. God alone will receive glory for it, but men and women must choose to receive it. Most won't receive it, though. Most reject it outright. Don't be one of those ones. Yeah. Alright, does anyone have any uh, any questions or any something they want to add? Yeah, I would just point that you know, the, the Bible seems to represent your mind as under the law of necessity that when God presents truth of the mind, the mind has to affirm it. But it's the will that's under the law of liberty that when mind is presented to the when truth is presented to the mind, the will can accept it or reject it. And you see that in Stephen's audience where it says they couldn't resist the wisdom of Stephen. That their mind had to affirm it. They couldn't resist it. But it says uh, but they they resisted the Holy Spirit because their will was under the, under liberty. They could obey it or disobey it. And you see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. The light came upon him, and, and he couldn't deny it. His mind, uh, light is representative of revelation. You know, he had a revelation of God. A truth was presented to him. He couldn't deny it, but he says, I wasn't disobedient to that vision. So he chose to obey that. So uh, sometimes, you know... We need to make sharp distinctions between necessity and liberty. You know, the Calvinist says everything is under necessity, and they try to represent the other side as saying everything's under liberty, where it's not true, that some things are under necessity. Your mind operates under necessity, but your will operates under liberty. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the Apostle Paul can deny that he had a light shine down from heaven, he can deny that he was blinded, and he could, he could deny that he heard a voice from heaven, and those are just truth. Yeah. But it was, it was his ability to choose to receive it and obey it or not. 
And, and God says, I stretch forth my hand all day long against rebellious people or disobedient people. You know, so he's, you, see, you see God being active, stretching out his hand. And they're, and, and they're rejecting it and grieving the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus before Jerusalem saying, I wanted you to come unto me, but you were not willing. So you see God's reaching out and man is running from God. Amen. You know, rather than, than, than you, you see, like in the, in the Calvinist view, you've got God and man running from each other. Right. But in reality, God's running after the man who's running away. Right. Yeah. Well, next day we're going to talk about P, perseverance of the saints. Um, it basically says that if, if God, you know, all, all the rest of the true, P has to be true. God saves a man, God's going to keep a man. Okay, man can't fall away, man can't walk away from God. And I tell you, when I, I used to believe in parts of these tulip, that was the one I held on to the longest, personally. And, but it's the one I think that has the most scripture against it. <coughs> it shows you how, how willfully blind I was myself at one point in time to choose not to receive that. To choose to try to fit everything inside this little tight, little neat theological box. And if it didn't, I was kind of dismissed it or act like it wasn't there. But there's so many verses that go in SP, I think it'll be overwhelming. I think we have a lot of scriptures today. Wait till next week. Okay, and, and, then, uh, and then the week after, we'll go through T again one more time just to recount the test the foundation of the whole thing. Try to smell that a little bit more. And I, I think I want some more I want to add to that. And then the week after that, we're going to review the whole thing one more time. So we need to have this in our heads. It's very prevalent in society. And if it's false teaching, we need to make sure we can protect ourselves from it and protect others from it. 